Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. Well, good morning. We uh, are really looking forward to you inviting your friends and family for that candlelight communion service. I'm going, many people have, in our area have taken communion. It's, it's a very honored thing, and it should be. But I'm going to lead you to understanding communion from the Garden of Eden all the way through the Old Testament. It's a, it's a wonderful 15, 20-minute journey, and it will end up and culminate with us having candlelight communion together. How many of you have friends and loved ones that are going to be coming around during Christmas? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you know they're going to be drinking another kind of communion? Okay. So what we want you to do is we want you to get them here. It's going to be a great opportunity for them to hear the gospel. And I promise you, you'll be proud of your church. You'll be proud of everything that's here. But most importantly, you'll be proud that you have an opportunity to see them come to know Christ and know the real meaning of communion as well. Well, how many of you can say, uh, I'm not in the Christmas spirit yet? As a matter of fact, I heard someone say recently, I know it's December, but it doesn't even feel like Christmas. A lot has transpired in the last 20 months and has caused many of us to feel like the peace and joy of the Christmas season have been put on lockdown, on quarantine and masked. The reality is that there are a number of people that feel helpless and hopeless right now. Now, typically, as Pastor Chris mentioned earlier, there are a lot of people that feel during the Christmas season, not what they're going to get, but who's not going to be there or what won't happen as they go through relationship challenges, some divorce, some estranged relationships with their children. I think all of us have gone through moments. Have anybody ever gone through a moment where you felt helpless and hopeless? Raise your hand. That's normal with the ebbs and flows of life. You get fired. You go through a relational breakup. Something happens with a loved one. You have a financial crisis. It's normal that through the ebb and flow of life, something is going to happen to you that makes you feel like, wow, I didn't see this coming. But what I'm talking about is something different. What I'm talking about is, I was speaking to a lady the other day, and she said, I, I just feel like a despair, Pastor. I just, I just feel like, like, like it's just like a cloud, and, and like other people might be walking in sunshine, but like I, I just feel like there's a cloud hanging over me. And I looked at her, and her husband was seated next to her. I said, are you still married to him? She said, yes. I said, are you still healthy? She said, yes. I said, are all of your children healthy? She said, yes. I said, are your finances secure? She said, yes. I said, are you building your dream home? She said, yes. I said, so all of the pieces that are significant in your life are together, but you still feel something is wrong. So let me ask you, with a little general reminder, you know if you lie in church, you go straight to hell. Okay, you don't pass La Fonda's, gross tat, nothing, just gone. Okay, how many of you have felt that kind of heaviness 
Raise your hand. The majority of people that are here, and that's what people are saying all over the country. Because it's not just a moment. It's not just something that you're going through. It is a heaviness and a spirit of oppression that is hovering over the land. And then when you take that, and if you are, some of you, like me, have just stopped for your own personal well-being, if you watch the media, if you watch the media, how many of you just stop watching TV? Raise your hand. Look how many people, raise your hand, look, look at this. Look around you. How many of you got off of social media? TikTok, MySpace, YourSpace, Kiki, Batgeef, all the other ridiculous names. Daniel, you know I don't know the names. I'm just saying, there's names, whatever they are. Okay, you, you know why? Because you're bombarded. You're bombarded with all of this negativity and every terrible thing that's happening. Listen to me. It is a spirit that is covering the land, and it is the spirit of this world. But there is a promise and an exhortation in this book right here, and it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might be able to tell what is a good and perfect and acceptable will of God. Another translation says, don't be pushed into the world's mold. How do I keep from that, Pastor? How do I keep from feeling helpless and hopeless when that's what I see all around me? Many of you, like me, feel like, like you're on a train that you didn't sign up to be on, and you're traveling, and you're seeing things going, they did what? They said what? That happened where? This judge said this. The president said that. The governor said this. And you look at it, and you go like, how can I stop this train? And that's why many of us feel helpless and hopeless. But how many of you know we have a different hope than the people that are in the world? And how many of you know that God has not called us to be regulated by the temperature of the world, but instead he's called us to have an internal thermostat that is different than the world around us? So what are the ingredients to feeling hopeless? You feel fragile. You feel like there's no margin left in your emotions. You feel like you're just one step away from being fed up, spent, exhausted. Your goal is just to get through the day, not what you get to do today. You feel forgotten. It's kind of like they fail to remember you. You feel insignificant. You feel like no matter what you do, if it's a word or an opinion or a vote, it doesn't matter. You feel forsaken. Those who you never thought would leave you left you. Your ride or die rode off without you. And they didn't die, but you feel like you are. Forgotten is they fail to remember you, but forsaken is they remember to forget you. Fragile, forgotten, forsaken. That's what helplessness and hopelessness feels like, and that is the spirit that is in the world that is affecting every single person, whether you've been able to describe it like that or not. So, Pastor, what, what do we do? Well, what do I as a Christian who know I shouldn't feel that way, who know, how many of you know 
Emotions are good to live with, but they're terrible to live by. Let's say this again. Feelings are good to live with, but they're terrible to live. Okay. How many of you here are married? How many of you love it when your wife's feelings are towards you in a good way? I'm sorry about the rest of y'all. Some sad folk up in this church. Don't worry. A marriage series is coming in February. <laughs> okay. it, it, it's, when, when Michelle's emotions are all directed towards me, I'm like, bring it on, Jesus. I surrender myself as a willing sacrifice. Okay. But how many of you know what it's like when mama's emotions are against you? It's like, Jesus, I'm being crucified. <laughs> you, you go from surrender to feeling like you're being crucified. Why? Because emotions are great to live with, but they're terrible to live by. What do we do if you feel helpless and hopeless? How do I respond in this world? How do I keep from allowing that to cover me and to carry that, that cloud of fog over me? Well, we get some incredible advice from God's word, incredible truths on how to do it. From a person who experienced far more being forsaken and rejected and forgotten than you and me. The author of Hebrews is a man named Saul, who later became Paul. Let me give you a little background of Saul of Tarsus. Saul was a leader of his religion. He started off as a young man, as a Jew, and became a scribe or a Pharisee. And then he exceeded above the Pharisees to the highest level of Pharisee, which is called the Sanhedrin. If he was Catholic, he would have been a cardinal. If he was Protestant, he would have been Billy Graham's right-hand guy. And then he heard that some Jewish rabbi was going around preaching that he was the son of God and the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, that he was turning water into wine. Come on, you know every Cajun to follow you if you did that. He was raising the dead, and, and then they even said that, that he died and came back from the dead. And he was so angry that Jews were being pulled away from that that he actually began a crusade to kill and imprison everybody who preached that. So to preserve the Jewish faith, this Saul of Tarsus went around from city to city imprisoning, beating, and killing. How many have ever heard the term knocked off your high horse? Here's where it comes from. Because Saul was on his horse and he was riding to the city to go in to do the same thing, to arrest, to go into Christian churches that were meeting in small groups and houses and to begin to imprison those people for perverting the Jewish faith. And while he was doing that, a bright light shone from heaven, knocked him off of his high horse, and a voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against me? And he said, who, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. And he was blind for three days. And he was told, and the men came and led him to a man who was a believer in the city he was going to. And the man laid hands on him. And after being blind for three days, his eyes opened and he could see. And he told him all that God had for him to do. And then something really ironic happened. 
That this man who beat Christians and imprisoned them and killed them started getting beat for being a Christian. Started being threatened to be killed and then ultimately imprisoned for half of the rest of his life. That's interesting. Do, do you think it, you think Paul wanted to get out of prison? Okay, of course he did. Do you think other Christians wanted him out of prison? Do you think they were praying he'd get out of prison? Well, of course they were. Well, why wouldn't they? Hey, we need this guy. If he would come to our city and preach to the people here, they all know who he was. They all know he was a leader. If he'll come and preach, a whole city will get saved. A whole city will be born again. Everybody will turn to the Lord. But instead, he was in prison. Now, let me just ask you a question. It's not a trick question. How many of you think that Paul should have gotten out of prison? How many think God wanted him out of prison? How many think God wanted him in prison? How many say, I don't know, because I know people that I want to keep locked up in prison. I'm sorry at the Lafayette Parish Jail. They're not talking about you. That's some other people over in St. Martinville and stuff. It's not you. Why is that so significant that I ask you this question? Because you know what this book teaches me? That if I'm a born-again child of God, nothing can happen to me that doesn't first come through the hand of God. And some of you are in situations that you feel like are jail cells, marriages that you feel like are jail cells, jobs that you feel like are jail cells, situations that you feel like they're jail cells. But if you're a born-again child of God, walking with God, no matter where you are, none of it could happen unless God allowed it to happen to you and he wasn't going to use it some way in your life. So let's just fast forward a moment and just ask ourselves a simple question. Maybe it's a matter of math. I don't know. We could just guesstimate. How many people could Paul have preached to if he would have been out of prison? Let's say he lived for another 20 years before he was killed, which he was martyred. How many people could he have preached to? Face to face. Let's just say a big number. A couple hundred thousand would be enormous. It's probably way out of line. It's probably something more like 25 or 30,000. Okay, when I do this, it's not because I have Alzheimer's and I'm trying to figure out what to say. Okay, I'm waiting for some response. Okay. Huh? So he's praying, get me out of jail. Christians are praying, get Paul out of jail and let him come and preach a revival at our church. So a lot of people can give their life to Jesus. But instead of touching 50,000 or 100,000 or 200,000, God has him locked up in jail and he's writing half of the New Testament. And instead of preaching to 50,000 or 100,000 people, 2,000 years later, he is still speaking to billions of people around the world. What does that mean? It means that no matter what you're going through, God has a bigger plan or purpose, and you might not see it right now, but if you will trust him, 
And here, this Paul tells us how to react in those circumstances because Paul could have got out of the cell, he could have got in a different place, or God could have given him a new perspective. And because he didn't give him a new place, you know what he wanted to give him? A new perspective. And that's exactly what he wants to give you. I know single people that go, man, I just wish I could be married. I see people all happy in church, holding hands, worshiping the Lord together. They were cussing in the car before they got out here. Some of the biggest miracles that happened at our Savior's church happened when people step on the parking lot. Daddies are screaming at their kids, y'all shut the hell up, what's going on back there? Step out of the car, walk in the church and go, praise the Lord, pastor. So good. Kids are going, this place is life-changing power. This is a miracle. It just happened right before my very eyes. Oh, that, that's for the Midtown campus. That's the Midtown campus. That's not the Lafayette campus. But, but he is about to give them not a new place, but a new perspective. And that's exactly what he wants to give you. Because God isn't going to transfer you out of the United States. And God isn't going to transfer you. And we're not going to instantly get a new president, instantly get a new governor, and instantly get whatever it is that you think that needs to be changed. He wants to give you a new perspective that can keep you, whether you're in a jail cell or whether you're in Lafayette, Louisiana, he can give you something on the inside that controls everything that's happening on the outside. So here he writes to us in Hebrews 14, Paul writes and says this, and as much then as we as believers have a great, what? High priest who has already ascended and passed through to the heavens. What is his name? Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our what? Confession of what? Confession of faith and cling tenaciously to our absolute trust in him as savior. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize and to understand our and, but one who has been tempted knowing exactly what, how it feels to be human in every respect as we are, yet without it committing no sin. What's that next verse say? Verse 16. Say it loud. Say it louder. Whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, always look and see what it's there for. Therefore, let us with privilege approach the throne of God. That isn't what it says, does it? Throne of what? Aren't you grateful that because of Jesus, it's no longer the throne of God, it's the throne of grace? I'm going to explain that in just a moment. That is the throne of God's gracious favor with confidence and without fear so that we may receive for our failures and find his amazing grace to help in the time of need, an appropriate blessing coming just at the right time. So what do we do when we feel hopeless and helpless, pastor? He gives us the recipe of what to do. Whether you're in a jail cell, Paul wrote one time, listen, after, after he's the apostle Paul, he writes, Demas has forsaken me. That was one of his associates. Another one, Luke, left him. Another time he writes, the coppersmith has done me a lot of wrong. Another time he writes, all of Asia has forsaken me. 
Let's just suppose you were from Bro Bridge and all of Bro Bridge forsook you. This man had an entire continent that forsook him. And he tells us now, he tells us now how we can have something internally that controls everything externally. Here's the first thing that he says is, hold fast to our what? To your what? Your words are the seeds to the future of your life. Your words are the seeds to the future of your life. Let me explain this to you. When my words and my will come in agreement with God's words and God's will, it releases God's will into my life. It takes my words and it takes my will. Because can I tell you conversely what's true? When my words and my will come into agreement with the enemy's words and the enemy's will, I'll divorce you. I should have never married you. That child is a mess up and he'll always be a mess up for the rest of his life. When my words come into agreement with the enemy's words and the enemy's will, it releases the enemy's will to my life. Let me ask you a question. Whose words, whose will are you coming into agreement? Remember what Jesus prayed? Thy will be on us in heaven. God's will is done by me coming to agreement with that. You say, Pastor, what do you mean? You can just like say it and it's yours. No, salvation comes through confession. Romans 10, 8, 9, and 10. Let me quote it for you. But what saith that the word is nigh you, and even your mouth and your heart. That's the word of faith that we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead. With the heart, man believes the righteousness. With the mouth, confession is made into salvation. You're saved by coming to agreement with God about your sin, repenting, and then coming into relationship with him. It brings salvation. Your confession not only brings salvation, it brings forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9 says, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sin. It releases healing. The Bible says, confess your faults to one another that you might be healed. Now, I'm a pastor, and people have confessed stuff to me. You don't confess to me to, forgive, to be forgiven. You confess to God. You confess to me so I can help you. I can help you. The other thing that comes through confession is not only salvation, forgiveness, healing, your identity in Christ. Your identity in Christ. Remember that song we were singing just now? I am who you and and we sing that over whom the sun sets free is I am a yes I I am chosen not forsaken I am who you say I am my spiritual mentor Leonard Ravenhill used to say this Christians sing more lies than most people tell Because it's duplicitous for me to begin singing, I am who you say I am, but then not allow my words and my will to come into agreement, my confession with what God says about me. In the law, there may be some lawyers here, there's a statement about possession. And you know what it says? Possession is three quarters of the law. If you're trying to decide who owns something, if I have it, three quarters of the law is on my side. 
As a child of God, confession is three quarters of the spiritual law. You're not who you think you are. You're not who you hope you are. You're not who you want to be. You're who you confess that you are that comes into agreement with what God says about you. Now, I have a little insight about this. I have a little insight. Uh, every, every week, I get a chance to say something, and I always throw this out. I'm always, in every sermon, I want to say something about sexual purity. In every sermon, I'm just going to throw it out. God ordained marriage between, between a man and a woman. God made male and female. No translation has altered that. So every week, one way or another, I'm going to say something like that. And so the other week I was preaching and I said, if you're living with somebody and you're not married, repent. You need to get your life right with God. Okay. Well, a couple of weeks ago I said that and two people came up to Pastor Chris afterwards from the church and said, we've been living together. We're not married. Can you marry us now? And he married them right here on the spot. Well, right after I said that, the next week I was having some work done at my house and there's a young man, about in his early 20s, and, and he came out to give me a bid on some tree work and he goes, hey, hey, pastor. He said, um, he said, I started going to your church. This last week we dedicated my child. I said, that's amazing. He said, yeah. He said, I just knew I wanted my child dedicated and, and, and so I knew of your son, so I, I wanted to come over here. I said, well, that's great. My daughter-in-law, Rochelle, just like she helped today, she said, yeah, I met her. It's wonderful. I said, well, how long have y'all been married? He goes, oh, we're not married. Now, I am told that when I get ready to correct someone, my Adam's apple comes out like this and that I do this with my glasses. <laughs> kind of like when you drive in front of the Catholic church, you do this. I start going... So we're standing in my yard, and he says, oh, we're not married. My, I start going. And I said to him, my patented answer to that, which is, well, is it that you don't want the blessing of God on your life, or you're just ashamed to give her your last name? Oh, you can use that. That's copyrighted, the Mexicoon. And so he looked at me and he goes, you're, you're right. You're right. He said, you know, I've been filled with anxiety and stuff. He said, my wife keeps telling me I need to go and get on some medication. He said, I don't need medication. I'm convicted. I know that I should be married. I, I know better than this. I know what God wants me to do. And, 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 and I, I just can't rest. I can't sleep until I get right with God. Let me explain to you what conviction is. How many of you are old enough to remember those recruiting signs that would say, Uncle Sam wants you. How many old enough to remember that? I love y'all old people. Thank you. <laughs> Don't mock us. We're the ones that pay for the church. <laughs> and so, and, and that sign was like, this, and wherever you moved, the finger was pointing at you. It didn't matter where you moved. The, the way that the artwork was, it just, it would catch you wherever you were. That's what conviction is. When the Holy Spirit goes, this has to be removed because it's separating you from me. And so that's, that's what he said. I, I'm, I'm convicted. 
I, I know what I'm doing is wrong. So I said, well, then in that case, we got a free church and you got a free preacher to marry you. What are you waiting on? He looked at me and goes, you're right. Three days later, I'm in uh, Oklahoma over Thanksgiving and, and I get a text from him, Pastor, could you call me? I thought it was about the work of my house. So I called him. He says, Pastor, I got the marriage license. 72 hours. Can I give you a little spiritual hint? One of Pastor Tim's favorite quotes is this. Your spiritual maturity can be measured by the time, the distance between when you know you need to do something and how long it takes you to do it. Hey, so when you come up and go, the Lord's been telling me for a year I need to tithe. That doesn't say anything about you other than it takes you a year to get it. So now, I said, okay, good. I'll come in on Saturday. I'll marry you Sunday after church. So last Sunday at 11 o'clock, his mama, who was a praying mama, and his wife's family from a different religious background, never been in a church like ours, they're all up here. And we married him. While I'm here, can I just say a couple of things that need to be said? You know, people give the dumbest reasons for not getting married. Pastor, I'd, I'd like to get married, but we can't afford it. Can I tell you this? January the 15th, which is, I don't know, 20 days from now, 30, 25, 30 days from now, I will have been married 40 years, and I have never been able to afford it from that time to this time. <laughs> Come on, Mark Laborde. Come on, Don Mendoza. <laughs> a guy told me one time, he said, Pastor, he said, the prettier a woman is, he said, the more expensive she is. And he said, my wife's getting more beautiful every day. <laughs> Come on. You, Jimmy, you know what I'm talking. You know what I'm talking about. You men married to people, you know what I'm talking about. And then people say this, well, we'd have children, we just can't afford it. Do you realize your mama and papa had 13 children and they made like $13,000 a year? You wouldn't even be here had they not done that. They are all lies of the enemy to keep you from doing what your heavenly father says is best for you, your children, your grandchildren, and the world around you. Hold fast to your confession. And then Romans 12, 11, listen to what it says. And they overcame and conquered him. That's speaking of the devil. Because of the blood of what? Who was that? Jesus. Remember when he walked up, John looked at him and said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He was the Lamb of God. It was his blood that would be shed for the forgiveness of sin. Correct? Okay. So Jesus shed his blood 2,000 years ago. Jesus shed his blood 2,000 years ago. Jesus shed his blood 2,000 years ago. Because of the blood of the lamb, that's what he did. You don't do anything with that. He did that. But then what it says is this. They overcame him by the, because of the blood of the lamb and because of, of whose testimony? That's your job. The blood of the lamb was his job. 
But the testimony, your confession is your job. Many of you know that we have five sons and, and, and one daughter. And many of you know that Amberly Grace was adopted. But you don't often know the circumstances. Her grandmother would bring her to church when she was young and mama was in and out of church, different circumstances and relationships. And so Michelle always had a heart for Amberly because she knew the circumstances she was in. Her grandmother would bring her and she'd give her little things. I have a picture of me dedicating her when she was an infant, just like I did babies today. And She's about four and a half years old. Miss Michelle was standing up at the front of the church of the Broussard campus praying for people. Pastor Tim was here preaching that week. And while she's talk, talking and praying for people, Amberly comes running up with her mama behind her, and Michelle hugs her and says, I could just eat her up and take her home. And her mother, who's there, says, you want her? Amberly turned and she looked. At her mom, and she said, Miss Michelle, I should have done this a long time ago. You can give her a life I never could. The next day, we got a call from the Broussard campus. There was a little girl waiting for us. She had a SpongeBob suitcase with everything she owned inside of it. Can I tell you this? The moment she walked in the house, she's never called me anything but daddy. And she's never called Michelle anything but mama. And the moment Michelle took her by the arm, held her in her arms, she became Amberly Aranza. Do you know, because of different circumstances, we didn't get her name changed until her sophomore year of high school when she had to get a passport. But you know what? Just like when I married those two people right there, the last thing that I did is I turned around and I said, now I present to you Mr. and Mrs. T-Boy Boudreaux. <laughs> Her name was no longer Bear; It was Boudreaux. And in one moment, she could agree with that or she could not agree with that. If she agreed with it, there were tax benefits, there were husband benefits, there were protection benefits, there were health care benefits, there were all kinds of benefits. And look at me, you can be a blood-washed, born-again child of God, but if your confession does not match up with what you have as a possession, you will never enjoy all that Christ paid for on the cross and gave you as a child of God. It's your confession. Here's the second thing he said, cling tenaciously to our absolute trust in him as Savior. Hey, Jesus saved me when I was 14 years old. I was born again, but he saved me a million times since. How about you? How many of you should be dead because of a car accident or a motorcycle accident? How many of you should have been busted when somebody else was doing the same stupidity you were and you left and right afterwards they got caught? Good, the police are at the back. They want to talk to you. <laughs> Listen, Jesus has not just saved me one time. Jesus has saved me 10 million times. Some of you have lived your life so recklessly. When you're born again, you get a guardian angel. When you get to heaven, your angel's going to limp up on crutches, two broken wings, like a paraplegic and slap the heck out of you. Jesus has saved you a million times. 
We cling tenaciously to him. I tried to think of something that I could share with you that you'd never forget, so I want to give you one that I heard in 1980s and I never forgot. The real meaning of faith, F-A-I-T-H, is this, forsaking all, I trust him. You say, Pastor, do you trust people? I trust as much of this in Jesus as I see in you. That's how much I trust you. Now you say, Pastor, have people ever disappointed? Well, of course they have. I give them a bearing out. I've disappointed myself. So let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a simple question. Have any of you ever lied? Anybody that's never lied, I want that liar to raise his hand. Look at me. He has never lied to me one time. Forsaking all, I trust him. Here's the third thing he says. Remember, he knows our human weaknesses. He knows what it's like to be sad. He knows what it's like to feel rejected. Do you remember when he said on the cross, my God, my God? He was saying, Father, Daddy, Abba, why have you forsaken me? Did God forsake him? But he felt like it. He felt like it. When Jesus got to where Lazarus was and he wept, he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why was he weeping? He feels what we feel. He feels what we feel. A lot of times you wonder, Jesus, do you really, really, really know how I feel? How many of you ever been going through something and had somebody come up behind you and go, oh, I know how you feel. And what'd you think? No, you don't. I know that we find it hard to believe that God in the flesh, who was Jesus, God in the flesh, Jesus was God in the flesh. Jesus was God in the flesh. When he became a man, the pain, all that he experienced on the cross, you think, He doesn't know how you feel. God did not just become a man. He didn't just become a man. See, as a man, I could stand up and go, I'm done with y'all. I'm out of here. I don't like these circumstances. I don't like this cell. I don't like my marriage. I don't like the things going on with my family. I don't like this area. I, I can do that as a man. I can walk away. But look at me. God became a baby. God, who needs nothing or no one, couldn't feed himself. He couldn't clothe himself. He teethed. He had growing pains. God became utterly helpless because he knew that you would one day feel that way. Utterly helpless. He wasn't born at the Ritz, the Hilton. He wanted you to know he knows what you feel like. One translation says he is touched with the feelings of your infirmities, your shortcomings. And then finally, remember his mercy for your failures. 
How many of you always made honor roll growing up? Raise your hand. I hate you in a Jesus kind of a way. Those of you in the Lafayette Parish Jail, if you raised your hand, I hate you too. As a Christian only. I was the worst kid in every class I was in all of my life. I never made anything but a you in conduct, which is for unsatisfactory, not for you are cool. From the time I was in kindergarten until the middle of my eighth grade year, when I held the record at my school, back then they spanked at school. We don't even spank at home. Back then they spanked you at school. And I held the record for the most spankings in the whole school. I was a poster child for bad, for ADHD. I was a poster child for saying everything you shouldn't say and doing everything that you shouldn't do. When I was in sixth grade, I broke into the classroom and stole all the teacher's editions so I'd never fail another test because I was tired of failing. Except they caught me, so I failed that test too. Look at me. What I'm telling you, if my mother was in heaven, my father was here, my sister, they would tell you exactly what I'm telling you is true. Until Jesus came. Until Jesus came. And then the old Jacob died. And a new one was raised from the dead. And I became every teacher's pet. As a matter of fact, I never did well in school. My formative years, I never did well in school, ever. I was in fundamental math, fundamental English, every potential dropout class. I, I remember my fundamental math thing, Mr. Morgan, who smoked more than the Marlboro Man. So kids were always cheating. I remember going to finals. If, if you had a B, you didn't have to take the final. If you had an A, you were exempt from the final. But I had like a, a D or a C, studying as hard as I could. I remember walking in there the day of finals, had my pencil, sat down. Mr. Morgan walked up and he goes, what are you, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm here to take the final. I got like a C. He goes, Jacob, you're the only kid in this class that doesn't cheat. Get up and get out of here. I led a revival in my school. 10% of the student body came to Christ. When I wanted to get out of class, I went and sat down with my principal in his office and talked about Jesus. That's what I did. I was in charge of the school assemblies from the middle of my junior year, the end of my senior year, and I brought in the speakers and I would bring in preachers to come and speak at our school. When I graduated, my principal started calling other schools saying, you need to have this young man come and speak because he's had such a profound impact on our school. And with that phone call, before it was over, I spoke to two million students in public schools. One difference. Jesus. Jesus. I received his mercy for all of my failures. You see, many of you grew up like me. When you thought about God, how many of you were raised in parochial schools? Raise your hand. Come on. You're raised in a Christian school. How many of you ever had to go to confession when you were young? Raise your hand. You had to go to confession when you were young. Okay. How many of you didn't know what you were going to confess, so you lied about what you were going to confess? Raise your hand. If you lied, look at all these liars. 
So just think about it. You committed a sin going in to confess committing a sin. Just figure that one out. Wow. But, but, but look at me. How many of you were afraid? And many of us get our view of God that somehow when we go to God, he's this big, austere, angry. If you, It's not the throne of perfection. It's not the throne of rejection. It's not the throne of works. It is the throne of grace because of Jesus Christ. And it never runs out. The Bible says his mercies are new every morning. Every morning you see the sun come up, God has new mercy for you. Every morning you see the sun rise, his faithfulness to you through his mercy is there waiting for you. The throne of God is now the throne of grace. And for every repentant child of God, God will never turn you away. How many of you have ever seen God use people that you would never use? Raise your hand. How many think, man, when I get to heaven, I'm going to talk to God about that one. Can I tell you this? Do you know why God uses them? Because he sees things in their heart that you don't see. Hey, David had some issues. Brother had women issues. He had anger issues. I'm talking about the psalmist David. The one who you love to read, but you would never let him be your pastor. Oh, you know, that's Pastor Jacob. He married Pastor Chris's wife after he killed him. That's the Michelle. Oh yeah, he wrote a new psalm. You need to listen to his new song. The Lord is my shepherd. He did that right after he killed him. Nobody would have David be your pastor. But you know what David wrote after he was caught in adultery and murder? Psalms 51. He wrote this passage. God, you don't desire burnt offerings and gifts, but a broken and a humble spirit, oh God, you will never turn away. When you are humble and you are repentant, the throne of God is always the throne of grace. Somebody told me earlier, and thank you. Didn't Joseph do a great job last weekend? Somebody grabbed me earlier and they said, Pastor, when you introduced Joseph, he said, I just loved it. I know he's so proud of you. And then he got up and honored you. And, and I know you were just so proud. I was. I was. I have a lot of children. And they've all increased my prayer life. I'm sure yours haven't. That's just preacher's kids. And I always say, you know who my favorite child is? The one that needs me the most. The one that needs me the most. And you know who God's favorite child is? The one who needs him the most. He leaves the 99 that are doing great. And he chases after that one that needs him the most. Because he's still the God of all grace. You'll never run out. There's not a second chance. There's not a hundredth chance. There's not a million chance. If you are broken and humble and repentant, the grace of God is always available to you and it will never, ever, 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 ever run out to your last breath until you see the one who gave you that grace face to face. So pastor, how do I combat the spirit of this world? Hope fast to your confession. Cling tenaciously in absolute trust to him. Remember, Jesus knows your weakness. He knows. And receive his mercy 
for your failures. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. I know there's so many here, so many watching, who this word is specifically for them. I want you, everyone here, just take the palms of your hands and let them rest just on your lap, open. Father, come. Renew our confession that we will confess boldly, I am a child of God. That's what I am. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. Lord, I pray that every person here would hold tenaciously to their trust in you. The world around us and the enemy around us wants to erode. And today, Father, we're thankful that you became a baby so you would know our weakness. You would know our pain. You would know our pain. And today, we thank you. We receive fresh grace and mercy through repentance now, right now. Literally, even as people across this building are saying, God, forgive me. Lord, I'm sorry. I turned away from my sin. Just take a deep breath right now. Holy Spirit, wash us. Holy Spirit, wash us. Wash us and cleanse us now. Wash us and cleanse us now. Today, our words and our will come into agreement with your words and your will. And you said, if I confess my sin, you're faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me. Cleanse us, Lord. Wash us, Lord. I just want you to quietly say, I receive that. I receive that. I receive that. Come on. Another deep breath. I receive that. I receive that cleansing. And now with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to ask you the most important question of your life. Jesus said, unless a man or woman was born again, they wouldn't see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, unless a man or woman was born again, they wouldn't enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then he said, don't be surprised that I tell you, you must be born again. Have you been born again? You say, Pastor, I've been christened, I've been baptized, I've joined the church. Isn't that good enough? That's a great start. But Jesus said, you must be born again. You say, Pastor, what does that mean? Well, my birthday is June the 17th, but my spiritual birthday when I was born again this is a week before Easter, 1971, when I prayed with an African-American counselor in junior high school. That day, the old Jacob died, and a new one was spiritually raised from the dead. That day, I turned away from sin to the best of my ability and by the power of God. And the old me died. Yes, there have been struggles and strife in my life at moments, some greater degree than others, but I've never been the same since that moment. That was my spiritual birthday, my new beginning. Have you been born again? You say, Pastor, how can I do that? It's as easy as A, B, C. A, admit that you're a sinner. B, believe that Jesus Christ became your sin bearer and that he died for your sin so you wouldn't have to die with your sin. Someone will die for your sin. Either he did or you will. And C, confess Christ as your Lord and Savior as you turn away from sin to be born again. 
So if you're here today and you say, Pastor, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus, but I've never prayed to be born again. I may have been christened, baptized, or even joined the church, but I've never prayed to be born again. It only happens once, just like the day you were born. So I'm going to give you an opportunity. In just a moment, I'm going to count to three. And when I do, when I say three, I want you to lift your hand. And by doing that, you're simply saying, Pastor, would you pray for me today? I want to be born again. I want to turn away from my sin and turn to Jesus. Would you pray for me? I'm the only one that's going to be looking. And then I'm just going to pray a general prayer with you. We're not going to embarrass you, call you up. We're just going to pray with you right there to begin your spiritual journey. One, God brought you here. Nothing is ever an accident. Two, every circumstance in your life has led up to this moment. To this moment. And now, he's waiting for you to be born again. Three, if that's you, lift your hand high. Lift it high. One, two, three, high. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. Twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three. You can put your hands down. If you didn't raise your hand these last 10 seconds, you didn't raise your hand with these 23, I'm going to ask you. I'm asking this last time, these last 10 seconds for you. You say, Pastor, my heart's about to beat out of my chest. I know this is what I need. I don't know why I've waited so long. I know God's talking to me. I didn't raise my hand, but I should have. Raise your hand right now and wave it at me and join these 23. Wave it at me. Wave it at me. 24. Wave it to me. All right. 25. 26. All right. The church, let's pray out loud with all of those who raised your hand. We're going to join you praying out loud together. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. I believe it on the cross. You took my guilt, my sin, and my shame, and you died for it. I believe you faced hell for me so I would not have to go. And you rose from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with your Father. Today, Lord Jesus, I turn away from sin to be born again. Today, God is my Father, Jesus is my Savior, and I'm born again in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen. Come on, give it up for all those who prayed that prayer this morning.